You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. We can go and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Tonight we're starting off a, a brand new series called Safe But Dangerous. And uh, I'm not Dr. Phil. I'm, I'm definitely not Oprah. Thank the Lord for that. Um, but based off of my observations, which I think are good observations, what I've noticed is pretty much every college student in here, pretty much every college student I've ever met, and really any human being on planet Earth, kind of has two basic desires. Those desires being one for uh, acceptance and love, and then two, the desire uh, for like a special purpose or, or really wanting to understand what's the whole meaning of life? Why am I here? And, uh, and I share that with you because I think this new series that we're doing, Safe But Dangerous, really speaks to both of those things. Because we're, we're saying that uh, Jesus <clears throat> is safe but dangerous. That's where the title comes from. We're saying that the two qualities that we think best describe or sum up Jesus is, is safe but dangerous. He's safe in the sense that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from, it doesn't matter what you've been through, it doesn't matter what your past looks like, what your junk is, what your sin is, whatever you brought into the room, whatever you're going through right now, it doesn't matter. Jesus wants you. He's pursuing you. Jesus is safe. But we're also saying Jesus is dangerous. And he's dangerous because it is absolutely impossible to encounter Jesus and stay the same. Jesus has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for your life, but for most of you in this room, his purpose for you looks completely different than the plans that you have for yourself. And so tonight, we're kicking off this series in Luke chapter 18. We're actually going to go back next week to Luke 6 and kind of pick up where we were, uh, or pick up where we left off last week, because we are studying through Luke. But I wanted to start in Luke 18 tonight, because I really think the text that we're going to look at, verses 35 to 43, in so many ways encompass so well this idea that Jesus is safe but dangerous. So if you haven't already, turn to Luke chapter 18, and we're going to read verses 35 to 43. I want us to see this story as a whole, and then we're going to go back and chop it up. Luke 18, beginning in verse 34, uh, sorry, verse 35. If you have it, say, I've got it. If you don't have it, let me hear you say, I don't have it. Slow down. Cool. All right. That was kind of awkward. Here we go, verse 35. As Jesus drew near to Jericho... A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd go, going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Listen, I want to take a moment before we dive into this and just pray. And, and I think sometimes we treat prayer in the church like it's a transition tool from music to sermon or sermon to music or, you know, the end of the night or whatever. And uh, that's not at all what God intended for prayer to be. Um, so I just want to take a minute and pray and just ask that the Lord would seriously help us to take in this text tonight, understand it, 
make use of it, um, respond to what he calls us to do. So I'm going to pray, and as I pray, don't just like sit there and listen to me or, or think about other stuff, but would you just quietly where you are pray and, and however God leads you to. And if, if you've never done that before, I just want to challenge you to just dialogue with God just like you would dialogue with me or somebody else, um, just quietly where you are. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll get going. Lord, <clears throat> I recognize that as we open up this text, there's so many things about you that we don't understand so many things about you that we are yet to see. And even the things that we know to be true about you, even those things like the fact that you are king, the fact that you're all-powerful, all-knowing, um, present everywhere, like we know those things, but we still don't even understand what that means. We may never, ever grasp the extent to which you are all-powerful. And I say that just to come before you hopefully with humility in my heart and in my mind to say that you're an incredibly huge, great king, great God, one of whom I know that I am not worthy to stand in front of, one of whom I'm not even worthy to, worthy to really talk about. But we do come into your presence tonight. We open up your word tonight because we want to know you. We want to encounter you. And so we just ask, would you come into this place? Would you speak into our hearts? Would you graciously reveal to us more of who you are more of who we really are? And then would you graciously enable us to respond to whatever you say? Lord, we're saying that the Savior, your Son, who you sent to save us from our sins, we're saying that he's safe but dangerous. And I don't want to throw those two words around lightly. Lord, if at any point through this series we need to change those two words, I pray that you would show us and that we would change them. But we are saying your son is safe but dangerous because we really do believe that those two words describe him well. And I just pray that you'd help us to see that more and more starting tonight. Lord, I've got a lot of words on my notes up here. And if any of those words need to change, Lord, please just help me to submit to you and change them. I pray that in your name. <clears throat> Amen. So look at verse 35 again. It says, as Jesus drew near to Jericho. Let me put some context on this. So we've jumped way ahead from where we've been the past couple weeks. If you were to go back to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, there's this, <clears throat> there's this huge shift in Jesus' ministry. Like he's been bouncing around Galilee, been to Jerusalem, been to some other places, and he's doing all these different ministry stuff, healing a lot of people, um, doing miracles, preaching, doing these different things. But in Luke 9, 51, it says something that I think you need to take note of. It says in the ESV version, it says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, in other words, referring to him being arrested, crucified, resurrected from the dead, and ascending back into heaven, having finished his work. It says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Uh, I like the NIV translation of this because of one word that it uses. It says, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. That word resolutely essentially means, it means to be completely determined or focused or set on accomplishing something in particular. And it's in Luke 9, 51 that his ministry shifts. No more of this, uh, not to say he was messing around in Galilee, but that's the term I'll use. No more messing around in Galilee doing ministry out there. It's time to shift his focus to the very thing, the number one purpose for which he came to earth, which was to die on the cross, paying the penalty for sins for all of humanity so that we could be saved through faith in him. So now, Luke 9, 51, he begins this journey, this road trip to Jerusalem. And along the way, we see different things that happen. And here, 
in Luke 18, here's one of those things. He's now coming up on the city of Jericho, which we're familiar with because of what happened in Judges in the Old Testament. Um, but what we need to know about Jericho in this context is was it was a major city. So he's coming up on Jericho, and, um, and, and as he's on his way, people were simply following him. Just like in other parts of his ministry, these people are following him, and they would, they would squeeze in on him, get close to him, and he would teach them on the journey, on the road trip. He would teach them as they were going, oftentimes using uh, the surrounding environment as an aid to his teaching. And just as a side note here, I, I feel like Jesus had to have been just this incredible teacher, an awesome teacher. Um, the favorite class that I ever took was in college, uh, is an American history class, which I'm not a huge history buff, but it was because of the teacher, a guy named Dr. Barry. I'd heard rumors about this course um, being a, a really hard course, but an incredible course that people always said, if you're going to take Dr. Barry's American history class, you were going to take five, six, seven pages of notes a day, which, you know, we didn't bring our computers to class. It was in Arkansas, so they didn't really have computers for like 10 years after everybody else. Um, but, you know, so we'd write our notes and stuff, and they said, you're going to write six, seven pages of notes every day, which terrified me, but they said, you're going to love the class. So, uh, I, I go to this class, and I will never forget the first day. Packed classroom, we're all in there. And he just starts to teach. No, no notes, no PowerPoints, thank goodness. Don't you hate those professors? They just get up there and read the PowerPoints and are completely boring. It's like, why are you doing what you're doing? Just post them online. I'm not going to come to class. Um, but he was not one of those guys. He, he just gets up and he begins to tell the story. American history. And uh, for 45 minutes, however long the class was, he's talking. This was actually a Thursday class. So he's talking for like an hour hour and 15 minutes, and he builds up the story to this point where, I'm not kidding, like, we're on the edge of our seat thinking, holy smokes, what in the world is about to happen? And, uh, and, and we're like, you know, kind of gripping the front of our desk, like, oh my gosh, this is crazy, this is crazy. And, uh, and right before it gets to the climactic moment of the story, he, see, he looks at his watch and he goes, uh, well, I guess we'll have to, uh, you'll have to come back next week for uh, the rest of what happens on the story. And we're like, oh, you gotta be kidding me, man! Can't do that to us. Plus, there's a Thursday class, so we had to wait until Tuesday. Like, what is that? Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. That's like five, whatever. How many, however many days that is until the next class. And so we leave, and, and uh, man, you, you, you better be sure that everybody was in the class on Tuesday. And sure enough, I mean, packed classroom again. We come in, we sit down. He starts off by giving us that climactic moment that we've been waiting for for however many, however many days now. And, uh, and he starts back into the story. And he builds on the story, builds on the story, builds on the story. And then, uh, again, he builds it up to this climactic moment, and then uh, we're all on the edge of our seat, and he stops, looks at his watch, and he says, all right, I'll see you all Thursday, I'll tell you the rest. And we're, uh, I mean, at this point, we're just, like, not happy. We all kind of slowly get up out of our chair, like, mean mugging him, like, that's how it's going to be. <laughs> all right. In every class, that's what he did all year long. So everybody was always in his class, and uh, he was just such an incredible teacher. I imagine Jesus was like this. There's, there's another guy that, um, uh, that, I, that actually mentored me for part of a summer while I worked at this camp called T-Bar-M. Some of you, I think, have worked there before. Um, T-Bar-M is a summer Christian sports camp. And just side note, uh, starting in a couple weeks, we're going to have some different summer camps coming to Overflow. Um, they always like to come here and recruit you all to work at their camps in the summer. And I would just encourage you now to start thinking what you're going to do, thinking about what you're going to do in the summer, how you're going to spend that time. Some of you, God's calling you to go overseas, do missions for the summer, like the entire summer. Um, some of you, he's calling you to work uh, at a summer camp um, as well as other things. So anyways, that's a side note. Pine Cove will be here. T-Bar-M will be here. Other camps. But uh, I was at T-Bar-M working all summer. And this guy named Johnny Polk, he like ran the camp. 
uh, he would take a few of us guys and kind of uh, mentor us one, once a week. We'd get some time together. And he would always take us early in the morning away from camp. And there was one morning, I'll never forget this, he loads us up into a van and takes us uh, down to this river. Uh, some of you know what I'm thinking. Uh, we go down to this river and uh, we get out and we go over to, to the edge of the river and there's this massive tree, like huge tree. And he says, all right, I, wanna see, I want you to see how many guys it takes for you to wrap your arms around this tree. So we like link hands wrap our arms around this tree. It was like four of us. I mean, it was a big tree. And he, he says, all right, pull out your Bibles. And we, we go to Psalm chapter one. And uh, Psalm one, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it basically says, the first part says, uh, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And then it says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water whose leaf does not wither. And it goes on from there. But he says, look, this tree, like that's what this verse is talking about. And he begins to explain Psalm 1 to us as we're standing here looking at an actual physical example of what we're reading about in Psalm 1. And I share that with you because I think that's what it was like to follow Jesus and hear him teach. He was an incredible teacher. But, but the reality is that's not all that was happening here. That's not why Jesus just had these followers around him. It was, it was, it was not uncommon during that that time frame in their culture for, um, for people to link themselves to these different teachers, that they called them rabbis. And, and it kind of became like a private, exclusive group of followers that would follow this rabbi wherever he went. Um, so uh, this is random, I know, just go with it. Uh, random, but I mean, this is kind of maybe gonna help us picture this. So like if Snoop Dogg came to Overflow one night, uh, <laughs> Snoop wouldn't just show up in a, uh, in a black Honda Accord and uh, get out by himself, would he? Would he? Some of you are like, Snoop Dogg. Uh, <laughs> he wouldn't just show up by himself in a Honda Accord and get out. No, he would show up in a stretch something, you know, like stretch Ferrari or stretch, I don't know, something that nobody else knows exists. And uh, it wouldn't just be Snoop that would get out. It would be Snoop plus like his entire entourage getting out of the vehicle. And as they walked in here, the, the entourage would be pressing in around Snoop uh, all the way into where they sit down here in, in the pews. And, uh, and they'd be pressing in on him because they would want to hear whatever he has to say so that they could respond based on whatever he says. Now, I'm not trying to compare Jesus to Snoop Dogg, which I guess that's exactly what I just did. <laughs> but I do think that this image um, is really kind of similar. Jesus, he's walking down this road, and he had this group of people squeezed in, tied around him, and following him. And, and like I said, this was common in their culture for people to link themselves to to a rabbi and follow them wherever they went. And, and like I said, in many cases, it was kind of an exclusive group. So because it was exclusive, and it wasn't exclusive in this case, but because most people saw these groups as exclusive, the other people that were not in the group as this uh, rabbi and his entourage would come down the street, walk by, everybody else would line the street, hoping to get a glimpse of this celebrity rabbi, this celebrity teacher, hoping to get close enough to where they could hear what he was teaching, you know, grasp some of that wisdom that he was passing on to his little entourage, hoping to hear some of it, and then also hoping that maybe that rabbi would see them on the edge of the street and for whatever reasons, call them out and invite them to be a part of the group. That's what's happening here. Jesus and his band of followers, they're coming into Jericho. He's teaching as he walks. His followers, they're totally engrossed in what he's saying, not wanting to miss anything, they're asking questions. They're dialoguing back and forth. And then we pick up in verse 35. It says, uh, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, 
he inquired what this meant. So they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So now we have this new person that's kind of been introduced into uh, the scene, and it's a blind man. Now, I don't know if you've spent much time around somebody who's blind. Um, in college, co- college was my first chance to really uh, get to know somebody who, who was blind. I, I, um, I was part of this, I got involved in this ministry at a nursing home. And uh, basically the way it worked is they would um, connect you with somebody who was in this nursing home, and you would go spend uh, an hour, you'd go, you'd go twice to the nursing home a week and spend an hour with this person each time. So, um, and I got paired up with this guy named William Bunn. Uh, William Bunn was like 55, 60 at the time that I met him. Uh, six foot eight, so taller than Devin, who was up here earlier. Six foot eight and uh, over 400 pounds. Large human being. Uh, and also, uh, William Bunn, who everybody called Bubba, uh, was blind. And so Bubba and I got to, which you, I, wish you, I wish I could like introduce you to Bubba. He recently passed away, but Bubba, he talked with this real deep voice. And he's from Backwoods, Arkansas. But you couldn't understand anything he was saying. Because yeah, I literally had to learn to speak another language to communicate with him. Which is true of a lot of people from Arkansas. But anyways, uh, so six foot eight, 400 plus pound Bubba, we got to know each other. And, uh, and over time, like, I started to invite him to come to things with me. So I would bring him to church. I would take him to different sporting events on campus. And uh, it was really a learning process for me to learn how to lead um, Bubba since he was blind. But also he's six foot eight and 400 plus pounds. And the uh, first time I, I was walking him out of the nursing home, there's these double doors with one of those bars uh, that kind of comes down the middle. I didn't even think about it, y'all. I did not think about it. And we ran, we, he ran right into the bar, and I felt terrible. Um, we went to a basketball game, and we're going down these stairs. And I didn't realize, like, I needed to tell him we're coming up on stairs. And so literally, uh, but he didn't fall, but he, he, I, it was almost really bad. Um, but I, I learned. I'm, I'm sharing that with you because I, I learned. And, and what, what would happen is, so we would go to these places, like a game, for example. And I would just explain to him, here's what's going on, which I love to do because uh, growing up as a kid, if my plans to play in the NBA didn't work out, I wanted to be a sports commentator. And so I'd take him to these sports games, and I would, who says sports games? Uh, I would take him to these, these sporting events or these games, whatever. Shut up. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I'd sit there and just commentate on the game to him. And it was kind of like me living out this dream that I had my whole life. And I'd tell him what was going on. Every once in a while, though, I would just see if he was paying attention, and I'd say something totally off the wall crazy like, oh, my gosh, this guy just dunked on this other dude. Now they're fighting. He pulled his pants down. He's wearing polka dot underwear. Oh, my gosh, that's crazy. And Bo would be like, ho, 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 no, they're not, Austin. <laughs> Uh, he actually called me Houston Watley my entire time of knowing him. He, I don't know why he never called me Austin Wadlow. He called me Houston Watley. But, so he'd be like, oh, oh no, it's not Houston. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and he would catch me off guard sometimes with the stuff that he would, like, just know was going on, even though he couldn't see. We were at a baseball game one time sitting on the front row um, at the school I went to, and uh, there was a point in the game where just – being honest, these, these two, three girls walked in front of us, and they happened to be pretty, so I may or may not have watched them walk by. And uh, as I'm watching them walk by, I hear Bubba sitting next to me goes, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, I'm serious. And I looked at him, I was like, uh-huh, what? And he goes, I see you looking at those pretty girls. And I was like, first of all, I know you don't see me looking at them, Bubba, uh, but what in the world? So anyways, he would catch me off guard with this, you know, how much he knew what was going on. Um, but most of the time, I would just tell him, here's what's happening. And as I would tell him that, he would respond based on what I was saying. So if, if our team scored, he would cheer. If something funny happened, he would laugh and so on. Um, and, and I share that with you because um, Bubba's response was always based off of what I said was going on. And it's interesting to think about that in the context of Luke 18. Because here's what happens. Um, Jesus and his entourage 
um, really I don't want to call it that, these people who had chosen to follow him were walking through the street. And this blind guy hears everything happening, so he says, what's going on? What's all the noise? What's all the commotion? And then someone responds saying, someone from the crowd along the street at this point, responds saying, it's Jesus of Nazareth coming through town. So after the blind man hears this, how does the blind man respond? Like, what, is, what does he say? Look at the text. What happens? Look at verse 38. It says, and he, what? Well, before, well, how does it describe he said that? Verse 38, first words. He called out, or he cried out, depending on which version you're looking at. It says he cried out, and then we get to, uh, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then verse 39, it says, and Jesus, or I'm, I'm sorry, it says, and those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he, the blind man, cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So he cries out, and he says Jesus' name, and he calls him Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then the people around Jesus actually tell him to be quiet, so he cries out even louder this time, saying the exact same thing. Now, here's what I, I think is interesting about this. Cried out, looking there, the words cried out and then the words cried out all the more are actually two different words in the Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in. And that's interesting for this fact. Um, when it says cried out that first time, verse 38, I guess that is, the first time it says just cried out, essentially what that means is what, what we read it to be. You know, he cried out. He was trying to yell out and get the attention of Jesus. But the second time where it says he cried out all the more, it's a completely different word. And it really kind of steps it up a notch. It kind of kicks up what he's doing a notch. It's actually, um, it's actually grammatically speaking called an onomatopoeia. You know what an onomatopoeia is? What, what's an onomatopoeia? Yeah, sound words. I guess that's maybe a technical way to describe it. I don't know. Uh, words that sound like what, what you're saying. They sound like what you're trying to describe. Whatever. Give me an example of an onomatopoeia. Boom. Pow. Kapow, wham. Yeah, there you go. Um, okay, so what's, uh, how many of y'all go to UNT? How many of y'all? Okay, cool. So UNT, what's y'all's hand signal? Okay, so you, you already got, with the hand signal, you do uh, what, what noise? Can somebody do it like really good? Okay, you just scream. Whoever that was, <laughs> you just scream. And I think that was a dude. Was that a dude that screamed? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was. <laughs> so, yeah, Ka. Um, and, you know, you sometimes see on Twitter, hashtag Ka, um, when they're tweeting about, you know, Mean Green Football or whatever. That's an onomatopoeia, Ka. Oh, T-dub, where are the T-dubbers in here? What in the world is y'all's hand signal? Do y'all have one? <laughs> I, love how, I love how, except for the front row here, I'm like, I'm like where's T-dub? And you're all like, what? And I say, so what's y'all's hand signal? And they're like, oh, no, no, no. Yeah. So the second word, though, I, I, I say all that to say, the second word, cried out all the more, is, is really, it's an onomatopoeia. It's, it's kicking it up a notch. So, so it's basically describing now, this time, with a loud shriek, he yells, uh, he screams out trying to get Jesus' attention. Now, on the surface, there's really nothing abnormal about what we're seeing here. On the surface. Um, Jesus was very well known. He was essentially a celebrity. Um, and think about this. How many times in Scripture do you see it written, uh, large crowds gathered around Jesus? Or large crowds pressed in around Jesus? He was always getting mobbed by people. Um, if you saw somebody famous walking down Oak Street in the middle of the square, uh, what would you do? 
I mean, girls, if Channing Tatum walked up in here, he would probably take off his shirt because I feel like that's what he does everywhere he goes. And then y'all would not only scream, but start lusting and taking photos. And you go crazy, right? Um, somebody, uh, somebody or some buddies, multiple people I think were uh, to blame for this, but somebody shoe polished my car last night or this morning. I'm looking to see who looks down real quick. Um, and they wrote all over my car this morning uh, that I love T-Swift or Taylor Swift, or I assume that's who they're talking about, um, which I do not love T-Swift, okay? Uh, her music is fine, but I do not love T-Swift. Um, but some of you in here, some of you probably would freak out if Taylor Swift walked in here. Some of you guys who were like, no, nah, I, I don't even know who you're talking about. Y'all got like secret crushes on Taylor Swift. And if she walked in here, you would freak out. Like you would yell, Taylor. And maybe yell something like, can I get your autograph? Or can I get a picture with you? Some of y'all would go like way too far and be like, woman, marry me. Bear my children, Taylor. Uh, to which the security guards would then take you away. Um, a couple years ago for Christmas, my, my sister, she's, uh, um, I'm going to put her on blast. She's 34 years old. Uh, she's getting kind of old. I'm just going to be honest. And uh, she's not here tonight. Uh, <laughs> be quiet. Uh, front row is getting out of control. Um, so a couple years ago, my, so my sister, she's 34. So like her prime years was like new kids on the block and Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. Uh, and so like she loves those groups. And so for Christmas a couple years ago, um, I got her two tickets to new kids on the block, Backstreet Boys, when they were touring together. Uh, my idea was she was going to invite uh, you know, one of her good friends, girlfriends to go with her. Um, she immediately asked me to go with her. So plan really backfired big time. <laughs> and uh, so I ended up having to go to this New Kids on the Black Block Backstreet Boys concert with her. And it was the stupidest thing I've ever been to, if I can be honest. It was at American Airlines Center. And it was like me and 20,000 women. Um, and the moment New Kids on the Block and Backstreet Boys came out on stage, like, they just, uh, I mean, screamed. And for the next two hours, it was like this constant scream. Um, and it was so stupid to be there because I literally didn't hear any of the music. And where we were sitting, I couldn't even hardly see them. So uh, it was dumb. But I, I say all that to say, like, these people freaked out when they saw these celebrities. And, and I, don't, I think when we look at what this guy does on the surface level, his response really isn't that crazy. Jesus was, he was famous. Um, and, and so he screams, he calls out Jesus' name, and he, and he asks for something. But when you look a little bit closer, I, I, there's something so much deeper that's happening here. So, so look at this. Um, when he asks what's going on, what's all the commotion about, how do the people respond? What do, what do they say? First time. He says what's, he, he's, actually before he addresses Jesus, go back to verse 36. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And then verse 37, they told him what? Yeah, Jesus of Nazareth is passing through. Now that's significant because to, to the people that are responding to him, this man's identity was wrapped up in, like Jesus, Jesus' identity was wrapped up in where he was from. That's why they call him Jesus of Nazareth. But did you notice that when the blind man turns around and calls out to Jesus, he doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth, does he? Does he? What does he say instead? Yeah, he says, Jesus, son of David. Now, this isn't like Snoop Dogg changing his name to Snoop Lion that one time he went to Jamaica and got really high and then decided to change his name. And now, like, nobody knows what to call him. Do you call him Snoop Dogg? Do you call him Snoop Lion? Like, if Snoop came here tonight, what would you say? Hello, Mr. Dogg or hello, Mr. Lion. What would you say? I, I don't know. That's not what this is. 
This is a significant thing that happens right here. He doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth. He says Jesus, son of David. And by yelling out Jesus, son of David, this blind man, he's acknowledging the fact that Jesus' identity is wrapped up in something so much greater than where he came from. He calls him son, king of David. He's calling him a king. He's saying this dude is royalty, but not just any king. In saying he's son of He's saying, son of King David, Jesus, son of King David. He's saying, this was the king that has been prophesied about to come from David's lineage to ultimately save the world. And if you think that's a stretch where I'm going with that, listen to what he says next. So he cries out, Jesus, son of David. And what does he say after that? Have mercy on me. He doesn't ask for an autograph. Doesn't ask for a handshake. Doesn't ask for a photo with him. He asks for mercy. Something that only one would ask of a king. And as this guy's yelling out, what do the people around Jesus tell the blind man to do? Yeah, they tell him to shut up and be quiet. They're trying to hear what Jesus is saying. And they're thinking, this is our time to be with Jesus. This is our time to ask him questions. They, they, they want to be with Jesus. And, um, and they feel like this blind beggar is totally disrupting the moment, so they tell him to be quiet. And this is when something happens that I think catches everybody off guard. And really, if we read the text, don't just zoom through the text. It should catch us off guard, too. Look at verse 40. So after the second time, the blind man cries out, calls out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 40, it says, And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? So Jesus, hearing this guy cry out the second time, stops. He stops teaching. He stops moving. He stops the flow of everything that was happening in that moment. He then orders that the blind man be brought to him. Which this is interesting. He tells the very people that were telling the blind man to be quiet, essentially pushing him away, he tells those very people to go and get the blind man and bring him to them. Now, again, I don't know if you've spent much time around somebody who is blind, but, but, I mean, have you ever led a blind person before? It requires physical contact. So Jesus is telling these men to go to this man and actually grab his hand, bring him to Jesus. You need to envision what we've, what we've got going on now. You now have Jesus standing there, respected teacher and king. And now you've got this, the way culture saw him, simply a blind beggar. Lowest class that there was. Crippled by cultural standards, they would say he was good for very little. At best, at best he could serve. But because of just his situation, they would have said in their culture that he he wasn't even fit to serve. So what do you think that people expected to happen right here? I mean, I'm sure those people first that Jesus sent to go get him are thinking, yeah, come over here. Now you're going to get rebuked. Bring him, to Jesus, bring him to Jesus, expecting Jesus to stand over the blind man saying, don't you know who you're yelling at? Rebuking him for yelling out to a king. Rabbi. People probably expecting Jesus to say, yeah, you call me a king, then treat me like a king. But that's not what happens. What does Jesus actually do? 
Let me look at it. It says, in, and when he, the blind man, came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? That's crazy. He asks him, I think, the most stunning question he could have asked, and he did it intentionally. He knew the people around him were listening. You've got a king asking the common crippled man, what do you want me to do for you? Is that not completely backwards? This king is asking how he can serve the lower class man. And then you see verse 41, so <coughs> Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? The man responded, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. I, I want us to see a few things from this text tonight. And the first is this. Jesus came for the poor, not for the prosperous. Now again, I, if, if you've been here the first three weeks of this semester, this isn't new. In fact, intentionally, this is very much the same. Jesus came for the poor, not the prosperous. A, a common misconception about the Bible and Jesus' love is that he only loves those who appear to have it all together. And again, as we've seen the first three weeks, that's just not true. Jesus loves poor people just as much as he loves rich people. Jesus loves those who don't have nice clothes just as much as he loves those who do have nice clothes. He loves those people who sit in the back of class, leaning against the wall, sleeping the entire time. You know who you are. Just as much as he loves those, to be quite honest, sometimes knowing people who get to class early so they can get the middle seat in the front row. They're sitting there taking notes, always asking questions. Teacher's about to dismiss class, and they're the one who asks a question that keeps everybody in class for another 15 minutes. He loves them too. He loves those who bounce to Snoop Dogg or Snoop Line, whatever you want to call them. Just as much as he loves those who bounce to the old great hymns. He loves virgins just as much as he loves those of you who've slept with five guys in the last five days. He loves straight men just as much as he loves gay men. He loves people with 20-20 vision just as much as he loves people who can't see anything at all. Jesus didn't rebuke this guy for interrupting. Nor did he yell back at him from a distance saying, what do you want? Instead, he had the man brought to him. And, and I imagine from other examples in the Bible that after this man is brought to him, Jesus actually gets down close to him. Maybe even calls him by name. Says, dude, how are you, man? I, I'm so glad to see you. What's, what's going on? And then the king of the universe says to him, what can I do for you? Which again, those aren't words of a king. Those are words of a servant. Just like we saw last week, the Bible says Jesus didn't come for the healthy but for the sick. Luke 5, 31 to 32 says those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Jesus came for the poor, not the prosperous. And I hear so many people say, in fact, I've heard this said this week. Somebody has said this to me this week. People say, I want to give my life to Jesus, but I don't want to do it until I first fix some of the sin that's in me. 
Or they say, I want to get right before I follow the Lord. But here's the thing. The stuff that you're trying to fix, the gospel is the only cure for that. The gospel is the only cure for the disease of sin. It would be like you having this nasty bacterial infection and saying you want to wait until it gets better before you take the antibiotic. You laugh because it makes no sense. If you have sin in your life, you need Jesus. Just as it's crazy to say, don't give me the antibiotics until I get over this infection, it is even more crazy to say, don't give me the gospel until I get over my sin. Jesus came for the poor, not the prosperous. Second thing you need to see from this text is faith leads to restoration. Faith leads to restoration. There's a couple qualities about this blind man that we've got to see and have in us in order to be recipients of Jesus' love and healing. The first is the blind man recognized that something was wrong with him. Which this is really trickier than you realize. Okay, I'm, let me say that again. The first quality is the blind man recognized that something was wrong with him, which is a lot trickier than you realize. Because think about it. If you've been blind your entire life, then how do you know you're not seeing certain things? Like if you've been blind your whole life, there's some things that you don't even know exist unless somebody tells you. And even then, it's probably hard to grasp some of those things. And the same is true for us. Born into sin, like, and I mean, the Bible even talks about it. We're blind to our own sin. We're blind to our own state. We're blind to it. And if we've been blind our entire lives, like, it's hard to see that. Something has to happen to enable you to see that you have been blind to this huge issue, this huge problem that you need fixed. The Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, and that's Matthew 5, 3. In other words, the, the first step towards salvation is recognizing that you're an impoverished, crippled person. The first step towards salvation is realizing you've got this problem that you can't fix. So the first quality, the blind man recognized that something was wrong with him. The second quality was the blind man believed that Jesus could fix what was wrong with him. Everyone else called Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. This guy called Jesus, Jesus Son of King David. He called him king. He called him savior. It's one thing to acknowledge the existence of Jesus. It's a completely different thing altogether to realize that only Jesus has the power to fix you and save you. People believe and say all kinds of things about Jesus. What you believe about Jesus is literally the most important thing about you. So this man, he, he recognized that something was wrong with him. He also believed that Jesus could fix what was wrong with him. The third thing is the blind man asked Jesus to fix him. So you look, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, restore my sight, fix me. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.13 says, Jesus says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who asks will be saved. Some of you need to do that tonight. There are students all over your campus who need to be shown this tonight. Faith leads to restoration. 
Jesus came for the poor, not the prosperous, and faith leads to restoration. Here's the third thing you need to see from this text. Oftentimes, the people that we push out are the very ones that Jesus is trying to pull in. Let me say that again. Oftentimes, the people that we push out are the very ones that Jesus is trying to pull in. You look at Luke 18, 39. Right after this guy cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, it says verse 39, and those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. I think the NIV says those who led the way. In other words, and this is interesting, the ones who told this blind man to be quiet, to shut up, the ones who were pushing him away were the ones standing closest to Jesus. They were the ones leading the way. And unfortunately, many people who mean well in following Jesus, and even our leaders of the crowd, they ignore, some of you ignore Avoid and push away the people that Jesus loves the most. The misconception that Jesus only loves those who have it all together is because of this right here. People think they have to wait to get over their sickness before they take the antibiotic because so many so often we're standing here holding on to the antibiotic, holding on to the gospel, telling people they first need to get over their sickness before we give it to them. Which is impossible. I mean, a lot of times we unintentionally make people think that they have to get it together before they come to Jesus. We unintentionally make people think that uh, simply by not even using words, by our actions. Like here's, I see this every week here. But I don't think, many of you don't realize that every week you're unintentionally communicating this message to people who are coming in here who have heard the reputation that Overflow is teaching, the truth, the gospel, that you don't have to have it all together before you come to Jesus. So they, they're like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna try this. I'm scared to death, but I'm gonna try this. I definitely don't have it all together, so I'm gonna try. They show up, and they show up having heard this reputation, having heard a little bit of a glimpse of this message that we're going to teach here every night, they walk through the doors, they, they start to walk up outside, and all they see is circles of people standing there talking to each other, and all they see is people's backs. They're greeted with backs of people. And I know you don't mean anything intentionally by that, but what, what that is communicating to these people is, hey, get yourself together, and then I'll turn around and let you in. Get your stuff together, then I'll turn around and actually engage you in a conversation. You're welcome into this conversation. But no, they get your back instead. I think a lot of times we unintentionally communicate this message to people that you're not welcome until you get things right. Those who are blind, spiritually speaking, those who are blind need those of us who can see. Not to tell them to shut up and wait their turn. Not to tell them to shut up and get their life together first. Not even to yell at them from across the street and say, hey, Jesus is over here. And I think a lot of us do that. We think that that's what God's called us to do. Stand across the room, stand across the street and say, hey, yeah, Jesus is over here. But if they're blind, how are they going to find their way there? 
Those who are blind, spiritually speaking, need those of us who can see to go and grab them by the hand and carefully walk them up to Jesus. Take their hand and put it in his hand. Oftentimes the people we push out, even if it's unintentionally we're pushing them away, oftentimes the people we push out are the very ones that Jesus is trying to pull in. And let me tell you, the only reason I think this happens is because those of us pushing people away have forgotten that at one point we were the blind person. At one point we were the one on the outside, on the edge of the street, begging to get in. I'll never forget the day that I met Bubba. Um, I, I was paired up with just Bubba. Um, but he was sitting at a table with this other guy named Charlie. Charlie was Bubba's roommate. Um, Charlie had had a stroke. He was older than Bubba. He had had a stroke and was pretty much just disabled. Like he was in a wheelchair. He, could, um, he couldn't get out of his wheelchair, but he could use his legs enough to scoot around in the wheelchair. Um, he really couldn't talk. The only thing he could say was really funny. You'd say anything to him, and he'd say, how's it going? Um, that was the only thing he could say. So he'd just always say, how's it going? How's it going? That's how he participated in conversations. And uh, sometimes he would try to say something else, but it, it was just mumbled words together. Um, but it was, it was so cool to watch Charlie and Bubba's relationship. Um, they were always together, and there was a reason for that. Bubba was blind. Um, Charlie was not. And, and the coolest thing was, anywhere Bubba needed to go, Bubba would say something to Charlie and say, hey, I need to go to the cafeteria or wherever. And Charlie would begin to scoot his wheelchair over to Bubba. And Bubba would reach out and feel the handlebars of the wheelchair and he would stand up and then Charlie, though crippled, he could see, would then begin to slowly scoot his wheelchair out the room and down the hallway and Bubba would simply just hold on to the back and Charlie would lead him wherever he needed to go. It's the coolest thing ever. And here's what's crazy about this. Charlie was crippled just like Bubba. The only difference is he could see. And, and think about this. Don't you think it would have been weird if Charlie acted like he wasn't crippled and then avoided and ignored and pushed away Bubba because Bubba was blind? Yet that's exactly how we seem to handle the gospel. We act like we've got it all together and we act like we've always had it all together. But the reality is the only difference between us and everyone else is we have Jesus. And so here's my prayer tonight. My prayer is that this ministry would be just like Charlie. That in our crippled state, knowing that the only thing good we have to offer is what God has given us through Jesus, that we would scoot our wheelchairs across the, across the classroom, across the union if you're at T-Dub, the union one day if you're at UNT. That we'd scoot our wheelchairs across the dorm, across our apartments, and lead our blind friends up to Jesus. Jesus is safe but dangerous. He's safe. Some of you are just like the blind man. The people on your campuses are just like the blind man. You need Jesus, they need Jesus. And you need someone to bring you or lead you to Jesus. He's safe. He wants you, regardless of your past, regardless of your junk. And Jesus is dangerous. Many of you are like the ones in the front who rebuked the blind man. 
You're where you feel the most comfortable, but Jesus is calling you out of that and sending you to the blind men and women who are around you. And my prayer is simply that we would respond in the way that we need to respond. And some of you, you do need to respond, realizing that you're the blind man. You need to cry out, call out, ask Jesus to heal you of that. Others of you, hopefully you're convicted, realizing that you're like those people leading the way in front, often pushing away, whether it's intentional or not, the people that Jesus wants you to grab and bring to them. Which, which one of those people are you? And however God reveals the answer to that question to you, I, I pray that you'd respond appropriately. Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.